Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mark Casey discovered the Monica Lewinsky of the Elizabethan age and turned her already incredible story into an, an enthralling dual timeline tale of historic intrigue and contemporary greed. Hi there, I'm your host, Judy Wheeler, and today Bart talks about his passion for forgotten stories, explains why Will Shakespeare continues to fascinate movie makers, and reveals how a mystery involving three famous romantic poets is his work in progress. But before we get to Bart, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Bart's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Bart. Hello there, Bart, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Very happy to be here. Very exciting. Now, now I've got this predictable question, but I always like to ask it because you get some interesting responses. Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction as distinct from anything else? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? Well, I think it was, um, it actually was was more than just fiction because it was about stories, but it was about coming across stories, especially in college and graduate school, that just seemed to be um, needed to be told. Um, things that I didn't think people would know about or that they had been forgotten. And those stories then um, became the the motivation I had to start writing. Sometimes the nonfiction ones are just as good. When you find somebody like this Lawrence Oliphant character, I wrote a book about who seemed to be, you know, did is like Forrest Gump. You know, he sort of did everything. Um, and, but the fiction also, um, and the fiction I write has a lot of nonfiction in it. I mean, so that a historical novel, there's anything I put in, in as in my upcoming book about Shakespeare or the Elizabethan characters is pretty much real. So it's it's um, it is fiction, but there's a lot of nonfiction. But to get to your real question, it's the story. You come across a story, you say, "I didn't know that. I don't think anybody else knows that. I think I really have to tell them." You know, that's the motivation. And you seem to have a wonderful talent for finding these stories that have been hidden or, or ignored. I mean, uh, your nonfiction books perfectly well demonstrate that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just you just have a, a sort of an aha moment when you come across some of these some of these wacky combinations. Um, and then you just think, well, that's so out of the ordinary and so um, compelling that uh you know that it, it writes itself. The, the advantage of nonfiction, of course, is it's real, and therefore you can sort of tell it chronologically from the people's birth to their death, and not make anything up. When you get into fiction, of course, um, you have to improvise a little. But I try and always be plausible. Yes. I don't try to make up anything, you know, crazy. 
We will talk about your nonfiction a little later on, but because this podcast is mainly focused around the fiction and you've got a new, you've got a fiction book coming out just in the next couple of weeks, The Vavasaur Macbeth. So we talk a little bit yep. about that. You've made a specialty of blending dual timelines. So you have a contemporary part of the story and then it goes back to Elizabethan times. And I must say they, they work very well together, that, those two times. Sometimes I think if the the historical characters like Shakespeare or Elizabethan people, um, you read about them in school, you you see anthologies of their poetry or their writing, and they don't seem real. It seems like they like they didn't have a cup of coffee or they didn't have a stomach ache or you know they weren't real. And I think that by putting them in the same type of treatment as the modern characters that we can identify with personally. They come alive more because they were real people. Yeah. So in this uh, in this uh, story, I do have sections that talk about the Elizabethans, but they're always talking about their actual lives. You know, getting packed, ready to go somewhere, um, being worried about what they're going to find, um, what they f- encounter at court, what shocks them, what happens to them, and and then when it's you, it's juxtaposed with the modern people, we all can think, oh, well, these are real characters. And my thought is that you'll think the ancient people were also real characters as they were. So that's why um, I go back and forth, because I think it makes them, these people come alive more. Um, as for where I, where I came up with these, uh, the idea of the Vavasor Macbeth, um, I, I was uh, a grad student in English. I, all my education was about English literature, I mean, for just everything. Um, right up through graduate school. I was going to be a professor. There weren't any jobs, however. So I I did a lot of work studying up on people like Shakespeare, and I was shocked at how few facts there are about Shakespeare. My favorite biography of him by Sir Edmund Chambers is called William Shakespeare, A Study of Facts and Problems. And there are more problems by far than facts. And even Macbeth. We all think we know everything about Macbeth. It's not true. You know, it's an abridgment of a much longer play that was lost. Yes. And so when I have papers discovered in the tomb, they discover that long lost version of Macbeth, which 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 scholars can see um, had to have existed. And what we have today is a cut down version to get it done at court in under two hours for the audience. So those are all facts, you know, and interesting things that you discover in the book about even something as well known and beloved as Macbeth and Shakespeare. Sure, and the and the Vavasor refers to a, a courtier, Anna Vavasor, who was a, a real courtier in the in the um, court yes. of Queen Elizabeth I. Now, she's such an interesting person and had such an interesting life that once again you think, gosh, it's amazing that we hadn't sort of heard more about her before. When you think of all the the, the industry that, that that is the Tudor novels, I mean they're wonderful. Wolf Hall, the other Boleyn girl, they're just wonderful. But somehow they miss this couple, mm. and 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 Vavasor and Sir Henry Lee, and and she was from birth really brought up by her uncles who were at court to be a companion for the queen. She was educated uh, like a princess to be somebody that could actually be in the innermost circle of the queen's attendants at court. And they placed her there when she was 16. Uh, she went to court with her sisters 
and uh, her uncles were there. To, so it was she wasn't all alone there, but she had the great misfortune to get seduced by this um, really a sexual predator, uh, older courtier, the Earl of Oxford of all people, Edward de Vere, who was at that point 14 years older, estranged from his wife at court alone and just kicking his heels with boredom when in walks this beautiful young girl. He seduced her and ultimately ruined her because she gave birth to a bouncing baby boy in the room, literally next to the queen in the, the attending maiden's chamber. And she was sent off to the tower with the baby um, the next day. And the Earl of Oxford was sent off to the tower as well. He was banished from court for two years, but he was one of the you know greatest, most senior peers in all of the realm. So he, he managed to get somewhat back. Uh, but she was just thrown out on her, on her ear at age 17 with a baby. Um, and you'd think that that would be the end of it, but it wasn't. Um, she, she, there was an older courtier there, Sir Henry Lee, um, who was um, the queen's champion at the joust. And he was rumored to be even uh, the queen's half-brother, an illegitimate child of Henry VIII. And he was the one who sort of founded the cult of Elizabeth and introduced all this chivalry into the court. And he, he was her champion uh, when they had the tournaments jousting. He was 57. He was about to retire. And he invited Anne, who was then 27, and her son to come live with him. And he was one of the richest men in England. And they then lived together for 20, more, 20 plus years. And when he died, he left her all his money. So she came, became one of the richest women in England, or one of the richest people in England. And then her story didn't even end then. It went on and on. The heirs to Sir Henry, who were all very distant relatives, tried everything they could to get the money. But she, wouldn't, she didn't succumb. <laughs> and she lived, apparently, till a rumor has it, to, into her 90s, which means the first people who were Sir Henry's heirs and even their children and perhaps their grandchildren didn't get any money until Anne went. Then they got whatever was left. So she had a hell of a comeback. Do you think she was ridiculed as like the Monica Lewinsky of her age mm. and, and made a mockery of? And then she came all the way back. And she was even a great friend of King James and his queen, Queen Anne of Denmark. They got on like a house on fire. James and his son, the Prince of Wales, would come hunting with Sir Henry, and uh, the Queen and Anne would sit around chatting all day. And this is all well recorded and documented in uh, uh, in literary in correspondence from the time. So she was just had a wonderful relationship with Sir Henry, who took who saved her, and um, then went on afterwards with his money and and got married again. Got she she was tried for bigamy at one point. She had two husbands. But, you know, that was all fine with him. He was in heaven by that time. <laughs> so she was really a character. Yes. and Well, I mean, you've just told us what a fascinating person she was. And she's very much comes alive in the book. And as, as I say, it's amazing that she she was left for you to discover with so many people writing in the period. It's, mm. Well, the only reason I did is because there are a lot of people, for, for some reason, who think that, the Earl of Oxford, Edmund de Vere, wrote Shakespeare, ah. that he is actually the true author of Shakespeare. And as a, as a Shakespeare uh, and English literature student, 
I wanted to know things about him. And there, and in among all the shreds about his, his miserable life, I found the story of his fling with Anne. And that's how I found it. Um, and then there was one biography written by one of the great old um, Victorian professors um, of Sir Henry Lee, because he wanted to, there to be a biography of someone who wasn't a duke or an earl in Elizabeth's court, but someone who was a, a knight, and he chose Sir Henry. Otherwise, the whole story would have been lost. Mm. We would have thought she was ruined by the Earl of Oxford and, and just disappeared, but she didn't disappear. She was she was spent her time in a 15-room apartment overlooking the Thames or in any of a half a dozen estates in, in England, including the ground on which Blenheim, is, Blenheim Palace stands. That was run by Sir Henry Lee. So she had a wonderful life uh, and a great love story. They loved each other very much. Um, you mentioned about the controversy over who actually really wrote the plays that we credit to Shakespeare. In your own studies, did you come to a definite conclusion just for your own satisfaction? I, I did. I, I think that um, I myself think that that William Shakespeare, who in the, in these discussions is always referred to as the Stratford man, yeah. the Stratford man was indeed the driving force behind all the plays and poems of his name. However, he was a collaborator, and he had he had real strengths, and and he recognized that other people had real strengths. I think the best characterization of how it really probably was is in the movie Shakespeare in Love. There's this scene where William Shakespeare is out of cash, out of ideas. He's he's got writer's block and he goes to the tavern and he see and Christopher Marlowe is at the tavern and he says, "Ho, ho, ho, Shakespeare, ho, Christopher." He says, "What are you working on?" Marlowe says, and he says, "I'm working on a play called uh Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter." <laughs> And, and Marlowe says, well, why don't you make it about a young man who's always in and out of love, perhaps an Italian, and who falls in love with his enemy's daughter or something? And you see, you know, Shakespeare's eyes light up, and he writes it all down, and then he, he scarpers off, and he starts writing. I think it was like that. I think that they collaborated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that there are examples that show um, how the people trying to pay the rent by working in the play industry in London at that time helped each other. Uh -huh. if, if, if one place burned down, the others, others made their theater available. If there was plague, they all went out to the country together to try and you know, play county uh, audiences around on the road. They really were uh, in cahoots together, and, and that's how the plays came. He was probably the best, uh, the most amazing of the bunch, for sure. Um, almost unbelievably different than the rest of the literature at the time. There was one famous critic, I think a Yale professor in the States, who said it was as if Shakespeare arrived on a spaceship from another planet and changed what was essentially morality plays that were sort of these wooden characters into full-blown psychological dramas of what we're thinking inside our heads. Sure. And it all just happened like overnight. And the link that you have in the book between uh, Sir Henry's household and Shakespeare and the play, is that entirely fictional? Well, no, there were, there were 
a f- there were two sides of the equation um, for people like Shakespeare. There was a very small group of people who needed plays to be written or things to be written. The Earl of Southampton, the people like Oxford or Leicester who had troops of players. Um, the court, the queen wanted to be entertained. And on the other side of the equation, there was this bunch in the tavern, you know, Will and Christopher Marlowe and all of the others, Thomas Decker and Thomas Middleton, all sitting there trying to figure out what to do and how what to write. Yes. And so it was a very small circle. And Sir Henry Lee needed things written. He had a, uh, an entertainment of the entire court in 1592 for two days. And they put on a performance, which the court actually was involved in. They led the queen and all the court, which would be like 100 people, around one of his estates. And they interacted with these mythological characters in this whole pageant about love. And Sir Henry needed somebody to write all that. And the, the guys in the tavern would be only too glad to get that assignment. And Sir Henry wouldn't have cared about the money. He had to hold the queen to entertain. And he was living there in sin with Anne Vavasor. And he was afraid they were going to put have their house put in order. But because of the great fun they all had, he got sort of the tacit approval from Elizabeth that he should just carry on with Anne. And it was all fine. So yeah. Sir Henry needed things written. And at the, that year, 1592, is the same year that uh, Shakespeare in Love is set in. In other words, the, the playhouses were closed for the plague. People were, you know, couldn't put on the plays. They needed to make money. And when somebody like Sir Henry Lee said, I've got a writing assignment, there would be a queue at the door. So they, so Shakespeare would know Sir Henry Lee, and Sir Henry Lee would certainly know Shakespeare. And so the plausibility of them interacting in my book is, is high. They yeah. did interact. They knew each other. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And now you're working on a sequel that, that involves Stephen and his his lady, Margaret. Margaret. Yeah, Margaret. Um, they are now off having another adventure following in the footsteps of Byron Keats and the Shelleys, I, I gather. How, how long? Yes, and I, I'm, I'm going to give it a little um, little space because I, I, I liked um, – the Da Vinci Code very much, but then it seemed to me that you know Robert Langdon had these adventures with with incredible you know frequency. So, uh, but so I'm going to make this second book about twelve years or so after the first book. So Stephen and Margaret will be older. At, in in this first book, they um, sort of adopt some Bosnian refugee children who are like 11 and 8. Those children will now be in their 20s. And they all go on a family holiday over to Lake Geneva and then da- over the Alps and down into Italy, as did uh, Byron, Percy, and Mary Shelley, and, uh, and Keats eventually was, you know, went to Rome as well. And um, that's just the sort of thing that Stephen likes to do in his life in the book, travel and follow in the footsteps of, um, of where great events or great literature was, was uh, occurred. In fact, that's exactly what Shelley and Byron were doing. They were going to Lake Geneva because that's where Voltaire wrote his books, and they were following in the footsteps of, of other famous writers themselves. 
and renting like Airbnbs, although, you know, Lord Byron's Airbnb was the Diodoti Palace on on uh, Lake Geneva. But they were all doing exactly what uh, Stephen and Margaret will do, renting houses and following in these footsteps. And, you know, it's not hard duty to go to Italy. No, I was going to say, to, to research that book, did you have to do exactly the same tour? Sadly, last year, in about this time, I, I was in Lake Geneva and then over the Alps, and I saw where Mary got the idea for Frankenstein, you know, the, the in the snowy Alps. I went, and then I went down into Pisa, where, where Shelley camped out with his friends and followed Byron around. Yes, I did. How Hope wonderful. To go back yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's great. That should be fun too. That's wonderful. Um, we, I would love to mention these non-fiction books that you've referred to because their stories are just as wonderful in their own way. Now, one of them, The Wonder Seekers of Fountain Grove, um, yes. it, it goes a long way to prove the old ad ad adage that facts are sometimes stranger than fiction, doesn't it? Because... It's about a, a religious cult in California, a genuine uh, religious cult, one of those predicting the second coming of Christ type of cults, which also ran a very successful winery business over quite a long period of time. That's really the difference between this particular cult. The, the, the prophet um, who really believed he was in, in touch with heaven and celestial angels and would go visit them. And he even had a father to family in heaven and had a fam a, a wife and, and celestial children in heaven. He was, during the day, a shrewd businessman, which makes him very different from any other cult leader. And they had a fabulously profitable winery. I mean, they, they lived in opulence and they had a campus with about 20 or 30 different buildings in this beautiful Sonoma County, right near, you know, right in the heart of wine country. And they were they they did very well, and so the the community persisted for about seventy years. They went right through the prohibition, I gather. Yes, they made um, they made sacramental wine and sold it to uh, Christian ministers and rabbis, and they made uh, various tonics that were approved for uh, medicine use, medical use by the prohibition authorities. And he kept the 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 person who was running it then, who was a a, a young samurai from Japan, one of the first Japanese to ever come to America, he got caught up in the cult, but he, he was more interested in the agriculture. And he ran the winery after the prophet had died and kept it going and then presented it at the end of Prohibition with all the fine wine stock still in, in, in place. So it was a really good run from about 1865 to 1934. So What and, happened to them in the end? Well, what happened in the end was that um, the Japanese guy was in, in charge and his family was helping him run the place. And they, he, they got sort of caught up in the anti-Asian uh, uh, fears that, the, you know, there was going to be an invasion of the United States from uh, the Pacific side. And then when World War II occurred, um, his whole family was sort of ruined and thrown off the estate and... Uh, they did, however, persist, and um, when we launched the book out in California, in, in Santa Rosa, they were all there with about, you know, 20 of the young generation to hear about the story of, that their, you know, great-great-uncle had, had, had done, and they were all very proud and happy and sort of very successful today, but um, 
the winery was sold. It became a ranch, became a, a cowboy thing. And then uh, it was also wh right where the one of the first of the big California fires took place um, in October of 2016, I think, or 17. I get the years mixed up. But it was they call it the Fountain Grove Fire. That was one of the first ones of the horrific fires they've had there. So it was uh, just a corker of a story. Mm. And this, this other book I wrote, about Lawrence Oliphant, he was at that commune for 14 years, but he had uh, other things in his life. But I, I, when I discovered the commune, I wrote a book specifically about the life of Mr. Oliphant, which intersected with the commune, but then the commune itself needed a whole book about it from uh, cradle to grave as well. So but you, it's a good story. You discovered Lawrence first and then you did yes, the Yes, and then Harris and then, and then the wine business and then what fun. Yes, well, Lawrence Oliphant, that book was selected as one of the best books of the year by Kirkus in 2016. And it's a biography of a fascinating guy who was an adventurer, a mystic. He was a spy and he impressed Queen, I love this bit, he impressed Queen Victoria with his ability to communicate with fairies. I guess he, he learned that at Fountain Grove, did he? <laughs> She, yes, he did. And she has a note in her diary saying that she had dinner with Mr. Oliphant, who has some very strange ideas about religion. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly what the monarch recorded. <laughs> and he was very good friends with uh, a lot of her children who were really of his generation. And, and he, uh, he, he moved in the highest circles of the British uh, elite and was well known to them. Was he originally American or English? Well, let's see. No, he was uh, English and uh, Scottish, and the family, uh, however, made their. He was the father was like the third son, so he wasn't going to get the the estate in Edinburgh. And he, they went out into the colonies. They were in Colombo and in South Africa. Um, that's where he grew up. And mm -hmm. then he he wrote travel books all around the world. And then he got hooked up with this uh, commune for a brief fourteen year period. Very interesting. So even though it's nonfiction, I think your fiction readers and listeners would like it. <laughs> oh, I entirely agree. It's a great story. And it's interesting that you started out by talking about stories because I get the sense you really are a storyteller, aren't you? That's right. That's right. And these, those so far I've had a few good ones. So <laughs> Yeah. Um, you started out in academia, as you've said. What happened? Did you, you didn't get a professorship because things were very tight in the academic world. So what, what did you do before you started well, full-time writing? I had grown, I'd grown up uh, watching my, uh, my, my parents. My father was in, in advertising in the 50s, sort of like in the, the mad, uh, mad men era. And... Um, we moved to England from America when commercial television started in UK in 1957. And suddenly they were going to have something new called TV commercials. And we were over there. And I, I was a child growing up in a house in the middle of London, right in, in uh, behind Selfridges in this huge flat where I could see people being entertained and having what seemed to be great fun uh, and traveling and everything. So when I, when I was uh, in school and I couldn't, pursue English literature, I, I decided to go into advertising. And there is a, you have to write well and communicate well in advertising, but I never 
during all the years I did that, I always kept up the habit of doing research for these stories. So, you know, the fact that I went to the British Museum lunchtime from the ad agency in Soho Square in London, where I was working for a few years, that's typical. I was doing research on the Sir Henry Lee and Anne Vavasor book, even though a while I was working on the advertising business. So I kept it going. And then when I stopped the ad game, uh, then I just joined, did it full time since the end of 2013. And these are the first four books I've written. Fantastic. So is there one thing you've done more than any other that you credit with having made a success of this writing career? Well, I think you just have to, uh, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to, per- it has to be perseverance that is the most important attribute if you want to be a writer today, because everyone will tell you, you, you can't get an agent, you can't get a publisher, you can't, it's impossible to, and you just have to keep going. Um, and I think that's been the the lesson and any and, and the encouragement I would give to anyone who wants to do this is uh, you just have to, as Winston Churchill said, you know, KBO, you know, you keep buggering on, you keep have to keep going. He signed all his wartime correspondence, KBO. So even whether the generals had lost or won, he just told them, well, keep going. You know, that's so perseverance is, I think, the most important. Yes. Yeah. Um. Shakespeare still has a great um, vitality in in our cultural life today. And I know that there's a movie that's just being positioned for the next lot of Oscars, which kind of is a credit to that. And it it examines a period in his life, which I think you'd be very familiar with in the last few years of his life. Have you had a chance to to consider that movie at all? I I don't think it's been general released yet, has it? No, not in the states yet. But I've I've looked at the trailer and I and uh, I I see what it is, and I know that um, it, there are certain facts known about Shakespeare, and one is that he did um, he although he bought the house in Stratford in 1597, I think the house called New Place, which was one of the finest houses there. He used, sort of went back and forth to London. Uh, most of his life was in London. But then at the end of his life, around 1608 or so, he died, I think, in 1616, he, he, he really went back to Stratford full time. He wrote for about three or four years, he wrote about a play a year, which seemed to probably really satisfy his friends back in London that they would get this material and, and that he would then still be able to be a main shareholder in, in the theatrical company. But he stayed there. And then for the last three years of his life, he really didn't write anything. Uh, and and there's a record of him, you know, being a local businessman and sort of loaning people money or, or making them pay him back or getting in disputes and just a non-literary time. So it, I would see that there's this mystery of this literary genius sort of melting back into that community and his wife and, and where, you know, where he had been sort of a visitor and that's, I believe the rich ore that um, the filmmakers uh, have, have gone with this new play, a new, new movie called uh, all is true. I think it is. is yes. It? And I gather that's the alternative name for one of his own plays, isn't it? Is it, Oh, it could be. Absolutely. And and I think that that um, is a wonderful time to speculate about because you have to speculate the same way that Shakespeare in love speculates about what the young Shakespeare is like. 
Um, we don't really know much about it. So this is a lovely speculation. Again, probably very plausible. I'm sure they based it on as much research as they could, but with Shakespeare, you have to just take a leap of faith. Like when you go to Stratford, they say, oh, this is where he went to school. Well, they don't know he went to school there. It's likely he went to school there. If he did, he, it was a good school to go to, but there's no documentation that he went to school there. Yeah. And, you know, here's where he, he did this, that, and the other. Well, there isn't, maybe. So yeah. I think it's going to be great. And that is, I think, what draws people to Shakespeare's story. There are so many possibilities that I think there'll be many more biopics about Shakespeare along the way. And it, I'm looking forward to them. That This one and Shakespeare in Love were certainly super. Um, this one, obviously, has got high level of talent. Ken Kenneth Branagh or Judy Dench, Ben Elton's written the script. So we hopefully have something to look forward to there. Yeah, and Judy Dench is back because she got the uh, Best Supporting Actress Award in Shakespeare in Love. So she's, she's double dipping here herself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> look, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading. We do like to talk about um, the books that you like to read, and I wonder... Have you ever been a binge reader as such? Yes. Well, I, th I think throughout my life, I mean, in, in high school, for example, in boarding school, high school, Ian Fleming, you know, my friends and I, we, we just had a set of them and we read them, you know, cover to cover the whole lot. Then I, with our children growing up, uh, the Harry Potter books and I, we would, with the youngest child, um, we'd read a page each at the table to get him interested in reading after, during meals. And as soon as he'd go to bed, we'd have to run in and grab the book from under his pillow to read because he had moved on 20 chapters, 20 pages ahead of us. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, I read all the JK Rowling books with the children. And then again for myself. Um, and then I found really the old classics are things that are great to go back to again and again, things like, to Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Dickens. We in, in my book club that we're I'm in, you know, just up here in Vermont with my friends. We had a Pick Your Dickens month, and everybody chose one Dickens that they wanted to read themselves, and then we all got together and shared about, you know, Tale of Two Cities or Oliver Twist and so forth. So, so that's great. And then Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, and uh, good old John Grisham, just to relax. Most recently. I was really blown away by the book Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, um, both the printed book and the audio book. It was just fantastic. And also, although it's not uh, fiction, um, Educated by Tara Westover, which is at the top of the bestsellers here now um, about her growing up as a sort of fundamentalist Mormon in, in a cult very much like the, the Wonder Seekers of Fountain Grove. Um, you can't really believe that it, it wasn't fiction, but it was actually her, her life, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. So those are all books that I find really exciting to come across and read. Great stories with all of them. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Look, we are sort of coming to the end of our time. Circling round, looking from the beginning to the end of, of where we are at the moment, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would change? Well, I think I would have been more focused about gathering my material for these stories earlier. Um, so I had a few more in the pipeline now. I mean, my, my start as a writer has come a bit late. Um, <laughs> so I am in a hurry, but, 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 but maybe that's a, a good way for me to be just now. But I think, um, 
I wish I had um, brought more of them uh, in into the hopper to get developed for writing later. Now, now I'm I do have next projects in mind, but um, I wished I had started a little earlier than I mean I, I was in the advertising business a long time, so yeah. many, they weren't lost years. But they I, now I wish that I had a few more books ready to c- pop out of them. Maybe one about the ad game that might be good. <laughs> yeah, although um, I think I sued. <laughs> Actually, that brings us very nicely to that question of what are you writing now? What's what have you got ahead of you in terms of your projects for the next twelve months? Well, I'd like to finish um, the the second book about Stephen and Margaret and the the Byron Shelley uh, and Keats book um, this year or very early in 2020. And while doing that research, I found myself being drawn back, and I've I've been many times to the Protestant cemetery in Rome. That is where um, Keats and Shelley uh, ended up. They are both there, but there are also uh, 4,990 other people there, some of whom had amazing lives. These were only people who were from out of town, if you will. Mm -hmm. They weren't Mm -hmm. local Italians. Mm -hmm. And there are some very interesting people. And I thought a book about about some of those characters, there were a lot of artists and sculptors, a lot of uh, diplomats, a lot of poets and writers. Um, That is something I'd like to write. Um, And and of course, um, sadly, it would mean probably relocating to Rome for a few months to to do the research. It would be like hell itself, but... (laughs) I, I would try and endure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Now, but where can readers find you online? And do you like interacting with your readers if you get the chance? Yes. I mean, I, I, my, my website is, is my name. It's www.bartcasey.com. And I'm also on Goodreads. And I'm, I'm this year trying to get more serious about blogging because I'd love to tell little bits of stories and then have some interaction with people about them and hear what they think and go back and forth. So uh, Goodreads or is really the place where uh, I could be found and would love to get into any type of conversation with, um, with readers about it. And if God help us, if, if any of your listeners decide that they're going to have um, the Vavasor Macbeth at their book club, well, I'll be happy to call in. And we can all we can all have a chat about it. So I very much would like to interact with readers about these stories. That's wonderful. Yes, you could do it by Skype, couldn't you? Apparently, here we are. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, look, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to catch up, um, and I'm really looking forward to to the Shelley book. The Shelley. Byron Keats book when it comes out. You've obviously got to develop a totally different plot line for that one. Oh yes, yes. But I've got I've got it I've got it cooking. <laughs> it should be good. And and I will try and make again, we all sort of know those names and we've seen their poems in some anthologies, but they don't quite seem to be real people. And I'm hoping that I can make them as real as I did for Sir Henry and Anne in the uh, other book. And the inter- interactions would be very interesting too, you know. Byron and Shelley were very different, yet they became the closest of friends. And Mary was it was you know she was such a modern woman to be with these uh, playing you know in the same game as these two. She was she could t- take each of them for her and hold her own ground in any conversation. Or it w- it's quite a remarkable group. And poor Keats, you know, dead dead at what twenty five or twenty six. You know, mm, unbelievable. Mm, mm, so mm. it should be fun. 
Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.